Welcome to Rome Alliance. At our church, we believe the gospel is good news for every aspect of our lives. Today's message will bring hope to your heartache, healing to your brokenness, and an opportunity to experience Christ's love and redeeming power. As a body of believers, Rome Alliance Church exists to glorify God, follow Jesus, and invite others to share in the hope, healing, and love of the gospel. Dear friends, there is nothing more certain than that you are going to suffer. Or that people around you are going to suffer. We know it as certain as the sunrise. Disease, death, disaster, disappointment, the terrible deeds. And friends, I'll freely admit, when you suffer, it is the most natural thing to ask why. None of us are made such to deal with difficulties and suffering. Part of the natural part of our being is self-preservation. We'll ask, why me? Why this? Why now? We start this new series that we're calling You Asked For It. And the first question that we're addressing this morning is one you asked for. It's a great question. One of the people that I read this week said he spent 280 pages and three years of research writing on a subject like this and didn't think he had covered it completely. If he can't do it in 280 pages, who thinks I'm going to cover it all in 25 minutes? But this I can say. We are going to suffer. The question is, how do we deal with that? So the question that one of you asked is, why would God allow someone like Hitler or Putin to be born when Christian couples struggle with infertility? It's really two different kinds of questions. One asks the the Putin-Hitler part, and the other one asks the Christian infertility part. But what I think is really behind this question Let me rephrase it. Here's the question I think they're really asking. Why does God allow some to suffer more than others? It really comes down to our perception of what is good and what is just. The goodness versus justice paradigm in the world today is a dynamic tension. But friends, I would submit to you as you study Scripture and as you understand the heart of God, it is also a divine conundrum. It is something that we scratch our heads about and say, I can't figure this out. It causes confusion and often causes hurt and angst amongst believers. 
But that is not a new issue. Depending on how we do on time this morning, I would really like to be able to touch three different Old Testament passages that we'll look at that address this subject. Three different writers. The first one comes from Psalm 73. Now this happens to be a psalm that was written by the music director in the temple for, Paul, for uh, David. No, this is one of about 20 psalms that are not actually written by David. This one was written by Asaph. And when you read it with me, you're going to say, the choir director wrote that? The music leader wrote that? There's no music to this. It just sounds like a sad, mournful dirge. I'm serious. This morning, just before the message, we sang, your goodness is running after, running after me. We sang about all of this faithfulness of God, and yet don't we often feel like that song isn't quite telling the whole story? We go through difficulties, and we have a hard time seeing the goodness of God. When we read Psalm 73, you're going to see that Asaph had the same problem. He struggled with recognizing the goodness of God. So bear with me, we're going to read a lot of it together. We're not going to cover it all, but it's going to be up on the screen, you're going to be able to follow with me. So, would you mind reading it out loud with me this morning, and I'll I'll pause. We're only going to read down to verse 2 right now, okay? Read it with me together. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. Pause right there. He starts out with a positive, and then it turns to, but I was on a slippery slope. I almost slipped. I'm struggling with what happened. I'm, I'm having difficulty. It's what's called cognitive dissonance. My mind can't wrap itself around what's going on. Read on with me. Let's see what he talks about. Let's finish the, 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 the section. For I envied the arrogant. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ill. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. He's distraught. He's to the point of slipping. And yes, I underlined key words because I want you to notice what he's focused on that's causing him to slip. What is it? They. Verse 1 addresses God. Surely God is good. But when he gets himself in trouble, the cognitive dissonance comes when he's focusing on they and not on God. You get the point? Too often when we ask good questions, we are focused on the wrong subject. We're feeling sorry for ourselves. We are taking the suffering personally. It's affecting someone close to us. The angst is internal because we've shifted our focus. You get it? Let's read on in the text. Now we come to verse... um, (coughs) 
Oh, now we come to the, the what, what is he doing? He's getting caught up in a critical spirit. I lost myself there for a moment. He's getting caught up in a critical spirit. He's focusing on they. <coughs> Friends, when you get caught up in a critical spirit, you're always going to lose perspective. You are. It's the nature of a critical spirit. Read on with me now. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds show no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. <coughs> they say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like, always carefree. They increase in wealth. Not only is he looking at them, but now he's looking at them with envy. You see, once we lose perspective, the spiral becomes going downward and deeper. Deeper into that envy, that spirit of rancor that is internal to us. And we become cynics. A lot of the cognitive dissonance we deal with is because we're dwelling on the wrong things. You caught that, I, I'm sure. Let's read on. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain I have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. Do you see now it's gone from they back to... And now it's feeling sorry for himself. Again, who was it that wrote this? Asaph. And who was he? The music director. Do you see what I mean when I say it's sounding more and more like a dirge? Negative. Feeling sorry. Can there come anything better? Well, let's read on. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me, till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground, you cast them down to ruin. Here comes the pivot. And to answer this question that someone posed, faith requires us to come to a dynamic pivot from focusing on they and me to understanding God and his ultimate destiny. And that's what Asaph does. The pivot in Asaph's case happens when he enters the presence or the sanctuary of God. That transition comes as he's looking differently at life and handling things in a different context. And the reason is because now he understands the ultimate destiny. He sees eternity, not today. And when we focus on God, it can help us shift our thinking from what is in the moment, what is hard, to what is in the ultimate, and what is eternal. And that ultimately becomes the means of our answering the question that's been asked. And this means there's a change. The pivot is a move away from focusing on they and me 
to recognizing God has something else in store. And faith ultimately brings us to the place where we have to say, I confess I don't know, he does know, my way is only what I can see, God has something bigger in store. Friends, my experience over 50 years in ministry has been that a lot of us get stuck at a point. We get stuck in a, in a, in a difficult situation. Hard things, the passing of a loved one, a spouse. A terrible disaster. Stephen Curtis Chapman went, one through, went through one of those. You know who the singer is? His was driving backwards in a driveway and running over his own child. And yet out of that, he wrote new songs that talked about the faithfulness of God and developed a new confidence that God was in control even though it was in a moment when he did an unspeakably horrible thing in the human mind. Do you get the point? Now read on with me. This isn't the end of the text. When my spirit was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. Boy, does that sound different than the opening part of the chapter, doesn't it? Do you see what happens when the pivot comes? When the focus goes from me and my and they to God? In fact, this is what I would call the confession. Asaph has gone from this critical spirit to this cynicism. And God has met him in a fresh new way. And there's a change of life. And out of that change comes confession. You know, sometimes we think of confession as admitting something. But really the word confess simply says... This is true. It's affirming. This is true. And friends, I want you to catch this, because in this few verses, in the middle of the text, he gives us three dynamic truths to help deal with the cynicism and critical spirit. The first one is right here in verses 21 and 22. We'll come back and wrap this up later. You don't, don't, don't worry, we'll get back to this. But basically he's saying, I was in a bad place. This is confession, humbly admitting he was wrong. He was in the wrong place. I was bitter. He says, I was a brute beast. It takes a lot to admit that, doesn't it? And he writes it for all of history to hear. This is the choir director, remember? That's, hard, that's a hard song to sing. Secondly, he says, but you held me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. 
His second confession is, Lord, I don't know enough, but you do. I I was in the wrong place, but you're not. You give me counsel. You held me by my right hand. You work me through this. So the one looks at himself and admits his own condition. The second looks at God and confesses his dependence on God. And the third one, he then says, there's nothing better. God's got it taken care of. I can leave it in his hands. It's not just that he's better than I am, he's bigger than I am, he knows more than I do. It is, I can rest in him. And then that confession leads to a closing section in which he would then, this is where the song comes in, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's actually been put to music. What was such a negative, dirgeful sound at the beginning becomes a joyful, triumphant faith sound at the end. Why? Because there's a pivot, a shifting from one point of view to another because of recognizing we don't know it all and ultimately God is the one who does so we can shift in our thinking. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are faithful, who are not faithful to you. I missed the word in there. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your marvelous deeds. Here is the joy. Here is the sound of triumph. It is that God is in charge. He is in control. And the evil will be punished. And the good will be rewarded. And ultimately, God will make all things new again and make it right. And friends, the only way to answer the question that was posed is that's where we have to get to. That's where we have to get to. We have to go through that pivot. So this is Psalm 73. There's so much more. I, I, I listened to um, a half a dozen different preachers preach on this text, and uh, there's a lot in there, but I'm trying to give you the sense of it because I want to go on and I want to point you to another connection, another important piece that comes up in two other Old Testament writers. Do you remember who wrote the book of Lamentations? Who did? No. No. Jeremiah wrote the book of Lamentations. They are the Lamentations of Jeremiah. And so the book of Jeremiah tells a lot of the story, but when you get to the book of Lamentations, all he's doing is this mourning prophet, this crying, uh, suffering servant, lays out how bad things are. Now, if you need to understand how desperate they were in in Judah at that time, read the first two chapters. What we know is it was so bad in the city of Jerusalem, in Judah, that mothers were taking their young children and killing them because they didn't have food. Do I need to be more graphic? It was desperate would be enough to cause you to scratch your head and say, why on earth would people do that? A horrible set of stories. The people were in a desperate shape. 
And all this guy could do was look around him. And when we get to chapter 3, verse 1, he says, I am a man who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. He has driven me away and made me walk in darkness rather than light. Indeed, he has turned his hand against me again and again all day long. Doesn't that sound about the same as Asaph? This is a prophet. And he's agonizing over how desperate things are. He goes on, he says, He pierced my heart with arrows from his quiver. I became the laughing stock of all my people. You see, he's talking about them and me. Doesn't sound like there's any clear thinking here. Yet he's a prophet of God. He's a speaker for God. And then all of a sudden you go from verse 14 to verse 19, and he says, I remember my bitterness and my wandering. I remember them well. My soul is downcast within me. Negative, negative, negative. Hard. Life is difficult. Suffering is abundant. But then look what he does. Yet, this I call to mind. What is it? Therefore I have hope. What is it? Because of the Lord's great love. Because of the goodness of God. Because of his mercies. Because of the Lord's great love and his compassions never fail, his mercies are new every morning. And here is that triumphant verse that says, great is his faithfulness. Do you see the pivot again? Things are bad. Maybe the most desperate they ever were in the nation of Israel and Judah. But here comes the good news. Yet, in this I have hope. In this, what is it? God hasn't changed. God is still sovereign. The rancor is dissolved. The hope is returned. Because there's a fresh look at who God is. Suffering takes on a different view when we can say, Great is thy faithfulness. He says, I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. I will wait for him. The Lord is good. Excuse me. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. That is just a few verses out of a five-chapter book in which he goes from this negative, difficult context of suffering, and the pivot happens in the middle of chapter 3, and all of a sudden after verse 19, it's like, there's new light, there's new joy, because I focus on God. And so when we have those difficult questions, questions we can't answer, questions that only frustrate us internally, where the cognitive dissonance is so strong, the answer ultimately is, who are you looking at? One more. One more Old Testament writer. Last week, Pastor Bryce um, got us into thinking about Habakkuk, and he started with the questions and the importance of asking the questions. Habakkuk in chapter 1 asks question number 1, God responds. In chapter 2, he asks question number 2, and God responds. And the response is even longer. And when you get to chapter 3, God is still talking to him about the importance of trusting him and that he has all things in control. So what were the questions? The question is, God, how can you allow this undisciplined, evil bunch of Babylonians to bring judgment on your chosen people? How can you allow the evil to, to conquer what were your good people? Does that sound like our question today? Sure. 
And you go through the whole of chapter 3 and you're, you're just kind of wrestling with the issues. And then comes verse 16. We're almost to the end of the chapter, almost to the end of the book. And he says, I heard and my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound, decay crept into my bones, my legs trembled, yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity. to come on the nation invading us. Meaning, there's something going on out there. I can't be the one in charge of that. I'll wait for what God's going to do to deal with that situation. That's not mine to worry about. I choose to focus here. That one isn't mine to judge. And then he says, Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no fruit, though there is no sheep in the pen, and no cattle in the stalls, can you cry anymore? Everything we're doing is going downhill. Nothing is working. Put your own language in there. Though the bank accounts are empty, so the kids have needs? So our family is struggling with an issue? So my children are having marital difficulties? Let me keep going. You fill in, though, 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 then what does he say? Here's the pivot. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. The last verse of the text becomes the pivot. Though everything is negative, though I question what God is up to, yet I will rejoice. God, this is not the way I would have chosen it. Yet I will rejoice. One of my, um, one of the great authors of the 21st, 20th and 21st century is a man by the name of Philip Yancey. Philip Yancey, as a 20-year-old new writer, editor, wrote what has become a best-selling Christian book that's called when, Where is God When It Hurts? Where is God When It Hurts? Now, let me just give you one quickie about his own life. <clears throat> as a young teen, his family on their way to the mission field, his father having contracted polio, a decision was made to take him off of the polio machines. And within days, he died. And they were never able to go to the mission field. And Phil Yancey, in his own inimitable way, tells the story of what it was like to grapple with heartache and a situation he could never get away from the rest of his life. Now he's 72 years old and still writes and talks on the subject of suffering. But out of that experience, he came to this conclusion. And he writes about it in his book, Where is God When It Hurts? Faith means trusting God in advance for what only makes sense in reverse. Faith is trusting God in advance for only, what only makes sense in reverse. In another book he wrote called Disappointment with God, 
who said this, when the world asks if there is any hope, we can say absolutely. No one is exempt from tragedy or disappointment. God himself is not exempt. Jesus offered no immunity, no way out of the unfairness, but rather a way through to the other side. So let me conclude this morning by just simply asking this question. How should I respond when I feel like I got a raw deal? Let's make it personal. Let me give you four closing thoughts. We have to get the train in the right order. This is not an original idea with me. This actually comes from Bill Bright and the Four Spiritual Laws. It's been around for probably 60 or 70 years. And that is, the facts are the engine that drive our lives. Know your facts. Faith is the coal car that feeds the facts. Faith is what rests in the facts. The feelings, that's the caboose at the end. They're just along for the ride. Don't live on the feelings being the engine that drives your life. Live on the facts, fueled by your faith, and let the feelings follow behind. So how do we do that? First of all, we need to be honest with God about our questions. We need to be honest with God about our hurts. Speak them. Confess what is true. When you don't understand, it's all right to tell God, I don't understand, I don't like this, but Lord, give me faith anyway. Help me to trust you. Secondly, be humble in respect to God's sovereignty and our finiteness. We don't know it all. We can't control it all. Surrender your power and control. He ultimately is sovereign. Sovereignty means... He's in charge. We're not. And ultimately, faith says, God, I accept you to be the one in charge, and I'll follow. Thirdly, be holy. Be changed into his likeness. Allow the experiences of your life to mold you and make you and fashion you to be following after God, to be made more like him. And fourthly, be hopeful. God has eternity's purposes in hand. We can trust him. And whatever happens, remember the train. Get our facts straight. He's in charge. Let your faith fuel the facts. And let your feelings follow in the distance. They're just the caboose along for the ride. Don't live on your feelings. Find the pivot that transitions where you're living from the hard issues and questions, the suffering and the angst, the renewed trust in God. Thanks for taking the time to listen. We pray you were equipped and inspired to reach out to others with the good news of Jesus Christ. To stay connected, like us on Facebook or join us on a Sunday morning here at Rome Alliance Church.